love Sam to come share her testimony. All right, so I should probably start at the beginning, but I would say I was raised in a mostly Christian family. We went to church just about every Sunday, and my mom told me that if they weren't going to church, they had to find someone to take me to church. So when I was in first grade, my family started church shopping, as we call it, and we ended up at Montrose Zion. And after a little while, I just went to church because my mom made me, and they had really good food. (laughs) In sixth grade, I joined youth group, but I was more scared than encouraged because I was a sixth grader, and I was with a bunch of juniors and seniors on Wednesday nights. But as I began to get uncomfortable, I began enjoying like the sense of community that was there. And one Sunday, Steve announced that the junior high would go to Project Shine as their mission trip. I thought, what the heck, it's one week of my summer, I have nothing to lose. So I went, and I got placed on a crew with Jamie. And on our third day, when we were working on this crazy monster house, it was ridiculous, she asked me, where are you in your faith? And I was, it was a question I didn't think would come from her mouth, let alone I'd never heard it before. I stared at her and remembered not answering right away. When I did answer, I said I go to church every Sunday as possible, as well as youth group. And Jamie and I continued working, and within my own thoughts, I thought what the answer was because mine just didn't feel right, and that's when I found the answer, which is Christ. So I walked out of Shine and went right back to all my old habits. I was a Sunday and some Wednesday Christian. I had all the answers within the church, but they never left the church. In the spring of seventh grade, I got confirmed. We had to sit in classes, but all I really remember was a video in the, about the Methodist church, and the dude had like the best mustache ever. I don't regret getting confirmed, but I know I just did it because that's just what you did. And I went back to Shine that summer, and that's all I could add to my answer about where I was in my faith. And that summer, I got the opportunity to work with some people from Lakes. I got to work with Brooke and Rachel, and I learned that this church existed, and I also got to meet Summer. So I went into high school with two concerns, sports and band. Those were the people I hung out with and did stuff with. My faith was still contained within the church, but I had a lovely vocabulary that had become a part of me at school and athletics. About the middle of November, my family began church shopping again. We probably went to a different church every Sunday for a solid month. But I asked Summer about Lakeside, and she seemed glad I asked. And so we started attending Lakeside in the middle of basketball season. So then one day at practice, she invited me to youth group, which I was so thankful for. I came in when it was really different compared to what I was used to. I was challenged in small group right away. One thing I noticed was that everyone loved everyone, and they all seemed really close. I felt at home even though I really only knew Summer. As soon as basketball was over, I was a regular. I was growing in my faith, and I would actually wear a shirt that had a Bible verse on it and not call it a church shirt. I noticed I wasn't bitter, and my Bible didn't have dust on it anymore because I actually read it. And I wasn't the only one that noticed my faith had gone into other areas of my life. My faith became part of who I am, even when I'm not at church. My favorite story that, was, that I have was during basketball season this year. My coach prayed for team dinner for the first few weeks, but... After a few weeks, he like showed up late, and people had places to go. So I'm like, wait, we got to pray for our food. And I prayed for a team dinner, and I got high fives from most of my teammates. I think I lost my spot. Okay. And so I've still been learning that faith isn't not about volunteer hours or the amount of time that I would spend at church, but faith is about a relationship with Jesus. So I was finding my faith. And I had all the Sunday school answers, and I began to build on my Sunday school answers, and I've grown so much from that. Now, if Jamie asked me that question today about where I am in my faith, I could say I love God, and I want to love him every day.
Well, again, I'd like to welcome you to Lakeside, and we're glad that you're here with us and able to celebrate on this very special occasion. Uh, I invite you to grab a Bible and to open it to the book of Philippians, which is in the New Testament. And you'll find the passage that we're going to look at today on page 980. We're going to be in the second half of Philippians chapter 1. And about halfway through our reading will come what is, for many, a very popular verse in the Bible. Even if they don't read the Bible regularly, you might have heard someone quote this words that, for me, in verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You don't have to be very old, and if I were just to ask you that question, you know, how old do you think you were when you realized that at some point life was going to end? That death was a, a reality and, and you were able to understand that it, that it was a reality. Unfortunately for many people, they, they come to that conclusion much earlier than we would hope because someone in their family passed away, someone that they loved is no longer around and so attending a funeral service as a child or something like that brings home this reality and and raises all these questions. What is this and and why does this happen to people? But even if we've not attended a funeral for someone, it's still at some point we become aware enough to realize that life isn't going to last forever. And so one of the most popular phrases that people live by is just, uh, they say it whether you're going on vacation now, some of you are enjoying spring break or whatever, they say, oh, you know what? All good things must come to an end. And that just seems to be the summary description of what we experience in life, that whatever we're going through, but even in the best of days, even in the best of times, all good things must come to an end. And so if that's your perspective on life, then it's very significant what you believe happens after you die. Because if you think nothing happens after you die, then we've got this short window that none of us know exactly how long it's going to be to experience whatever it is we're going to experience. It's like we're playing a game and no one knows how much time is left, right? I mean, if you're like me, paying attention to some of the basketball that's going on in March Madness, you know that there's this kind of way that people play when they're like, oh, we're looking at the clock. We got another half. Don't worry about it. We got another half to play. You know, there's nine minutes left in the game. In basketball time, it's like forever. And then all of a sudden, it gets to like there's 15 seconds. And the amount of timeouts that can be called in a 15-second period is amazing. But just this sense of timing shapes how people interact with it. Well, we're not given that advantage. None of us knows how much time is left on the clock, but everyone knows we're on the clock. And it reveals what the Bible says is true, that because of that reality that we all face, because of the world that we live in, we actually don't even know how to live the way we're supposed to live unless we know how to die. You and I don't know how to live the way that God wants us to live and how to experience life in the way he wants us to experience it unless we've in some way settled the question of what happens and how is a person to die. That's what Paul's dealing with in this chapter. He's come to the place where the the most basic question that every human being has to face, he's faced it head on. And because of that, He's been liberated to live life in all of its fullness, in all of the joy 
that God intends. And he has this radical perspective on life that for so many of us is just hard to imagine how he got to this place. He got there because he settled this question of life and death. And in answering those ultimate realities could then make sense of the the everyday mundane things that would happen in his experience. But what we're about to read today, it's called Philippians. It's someone writing to this city in ancient Rome called Philippi. The person writing it, his name is Paul. His testimony was once that he, as a very religious Jew, was getting really frustrated with this group of people, most of them fellow Jews, who were saying, we actually know the answer to the question of life and death because the person that we follow, his name is Jesus, he died and then he rose again. What? Yeah, yeah, he died. We saw him die. He was dead for a couple of days, but then he came back to life. Like he was in a coma and he came back to life? No, 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 like he died. He was really dead, buried, came back to life. What kind of life? I mean, isn't he just going to die in five years or ten years? Or... No, 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 no. He's not going to ever die again. And so he's told us things about life and death. And he has insight to give all of us to answer those most fundamental and basic questions. And for Paul, that was just crazy. What? You, what? He so couldn't understand it. And he couldn't understand how people who he thought believed what he believed, his fellow Jews could accept that, that he was violently opposed to it. And he started to do whatever he could, wherever those people were gathering together and meeting and talking about this Jesus who was alive again, and he would stop it. He would shut it down. He was one of the ones who thought, you know what, you're leading everyone into a ditch and I can't let you spread this message because if these people start to believe what you believe about life and death, it's just going to change everything and that's not acceptable. And eventually, Paul was so effective and his peers at the persecution that they were doing that the people who were living in Jerusalem at the time who believed in Jesus said, you know what, it's just, it isn't safe here anymore and we need to go. We need to, we need to go to other cities. We need to find other safe places to go. And Paul was one of the ones who said, well, if you go, I'm following you. I got a horse just like you do. There's, there's nowhere that you're actually going to go where you're not going to have me right on your tail putting an end to this silly idea that someone died and rose again. That was Paul. And it was on his way to shut down one of those meetings in a city called Damascus that he met and encountered the Jesus who was alive. And for the rest of his life, that was his testimony. He say, guys, I was the one who thought this was ridiculous. I was the one who was passionately opposed to it, did everything I could do to stop it. And the only thing that could have changed my mind, the only thing that could have made me go a completely different direction was to meet the very person they were talking about. And everything about Paul's worldview and his understanding of life and death had to change. And so that he became one of these people saying, there's this Jesus who died and rose again. And he can tell us about life and death and life after death. And one of the areas he went was this city called Philippi. 
And so he's writing this letter because now there's a group of people that believe in this most basic and fundamental message about who Jesus is. Where Paul is writing this, we'll see, just as we get into verse uh, 12 through 14, this is Paul's letter to this church from prison. Join with me as we start in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's in jail for Christ. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is much more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And that's where we'll conclude. Uh, For those of you who are joining us for the first time today, we're in a series in Philippians, so this is actually the third message in this series, but we've highlighted that if you didn't know it, you'd never guess where Paul was as he was writing this, because this letter, though one of his shortest, is filled with the most amount of joy and encouragement and positive affection for a group of people. And he says it even in the verses that he read. In verse 18, he says, I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. And he'd open the chapter by saying, as he thinks about the people, he's just overflowed with joy in his prayer, and he's just, he's really content and joyful where he's at. That when we find out where he's writing from his prison, we say, how's that that work? How can you have so much joy 
when you're experiencing such limited and harsh and difficult circumstances? And the first answer to that is that what Paul knew above anything else was that he was the recipient of undeserved favor. He himself was the recipient of undeserved favor. The one word phrase that we use today is grace. That he was the recipient of grace. Because when Paul looked back on his life, he knew that he had actually opposed this person named Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He'd hoped that everybody who believed in Jesus would just go away so that we wouldn't have to hear about Jesus anymore. And so when he discovered that Jesus was real and that Jesus was true and that when Jesus spoke to him, instead of saying, hey, me, this person you want nothing to do with, I'm real and now you're in trouble. But he didn't do that. This Jesus who was real and true and who Paul rejected actually had compassion on him and said to him, I want you to be one of my followers. I want you to become one of the people that tells other people about me. And so Paul knew, did did he campaign for this job? No. Did he have a resume in place and he had all the right connections on LinkedIn and somebody said, hey, you're a great fit for this? No. Every qualification he had would have been a disqualification from it. And so when he looked at it and said, you just, if we could interview him, he'd say, look, I am of all people surprised that I'm a Christian. It makes absolutely no sense that I am a Christian, that I believe in him and that I follow him, except that something happened in my life. I was confronted by him and not just confronted by the reality that he exists, but that he loves me, that he's good, that he's gracious. And he's treated me in a way that's better than I deserve. And so here's Paul in prison for his faith. But if he remembers, as he must have always remembered, that he was someone who used to do this, he's therefore not as mad at the people around him. He's like, I can't believe these people would do this to me. Why? Because he could say, you know what? I was one of those people. I used to do this. I used to be so persuaded in my head that Jesus was false, that Jesus was dangerous, that I did to others what these people are doing to me. And so he understood for the rest of his life and all of his missionary endeavors and every suffering and form of persecution that he experienced, he had this ability to persevere in them and to not be disgruntled and and caused to despair by them. Because every time he looked in a mirror, he realized that was me before Jesus. That was what I did before I met Christ. And so he knew that he was a recipient of grace. And it's hard, it should be impossible to be a recipient of grace and then be difficult with other people. (laughs) If you really believe that you've been treated so much better than you deserve, one of the ways that that should overflow is in your patience and compassion with other people. Plenty of people might do things that are wrong, might do things that are harmful, might do things that make your life difficult, but if you can believe that you once were like that, it just has a way of then making you and me more compassionate towards those people if what we know and believe and accept is that we've been given grace and favor that we didn't deserve and that we're disqualified 
from. Paul had that attitude, and so he could write this letter with all the joy with which he could write it. But I want to kind of visualize what imprisonment would have meant for him. So Brad, I'm going to ask you to come up on stage with me. When we hear prison or jail, we think a little bit, you know, it's just easy to think of like the most recent movie or TV show that you're watching where someone's in jail. But for what jail would have meant for Paul is that in Caesar's household, he would have been bound 24 hours a day to another person. So if I'm Paul, this is the jailer. And we're, we're hooked up. And he gets a break, but if he gets a break, then he sits down and someone else comes up. But I, as the prisoner, am bound 24 hours a day. When I have to go to the bathroom, when I have to sleep, when I'm just trying to have a conversation among friends. So that literally, as Paul is drafting this letter, and he's saying, okay, Timothy, Epaphroditus, write this down. There's some guy just over his shoulder hearing everything he's saying to them. Because Paul has, in his imprisonment, mobility. We can walk around anywhere we want in the house. There's plenty of places he could go in Caesar's household, but he was bound to someone the entire time. So Paul's way of thinking, because now he knows who Christ is and that people need to hear Christ, his thinking is, how does a guy like this get to hear about Jesus? If this is really true, and Jesus is who he is, and we need to get this message out to people, if this is his day job, how does this guy ever get to hear about Jesus? One of the ways is by me being a prisoner. Because I'm a prisoner, and he's stuck to me, he's stuck to me as much as I'm stuck to him. And I get to tell him about who Jesus is. Thanks. So that in the letter, when he says, this has given people boldness, and then at the very end of chapter 4, he says, in verse 21 and 22, he's now concluding the letter, and he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. In other words, especially the guys stuck with me, who in my ability to tell them why I'm here, they now believe in Jesus too. Isn't that great? See, I'm, I'm not any less restricted in being able to do what I'm called to do, which is to tell people about Jesus, whether I'm out of prison or in prison. Because if I'm out of prison, I'll just talk to people who are out of prison. If I'm in prison, I'll talk to people in prison. But either way, I have news to tell, and I can tell it in prison just as much as not. So that's what he's meaning when he says, verse 13 of chapter 1, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so he is able to share with them as someone who himself had received grace to now extend this grace. And because he's received this undeserved favor, what he now has is unshakable joy. He has unshakable joy because his joy is now rooted not in himself, not in what he's done, but in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him so that whether he's bound to another person or not, He's free in Christ, free to share the message with whoever will listen and to try to implore them that they should know him too, that they should place their joy in something that is ultimate, that's something that is eternal. Because basically what Paul 
you know, in some sense, we would say he's got a burden of proof on him, right? Like, how are you going to talk the jailer in that your way of life is better when you're stuck in a prison? He's like, I mean, you want me to believe what you believe so I have to stay here all day long like you do? I mean, I at least get to go home at night and see someone else. I mean, you're stuck here. So, so what does Paul have that he can share and that he can say that would make someone say, even though it doesn't seem to be working out for you in an earthly sense, I am compelled by what you're saying. Well, one of the ways is that this, the jailers that have this responsibility can see that Paul has an unshakable joy. And they're like, I mean, I get to go home and I'm miserable at home. You're here and you, you, you don't seem to be miserable. I, I have all the freedom to do what I want to do. I, if I want to just party on a Saturday night, I can just decide to do that. I can call up my friends and we can go. And for some reason, always at the end of that, I feel worse than I did before. Here you are, you have no personal freedom of any kind Every sense of your humanity is being challenged and undermined, and you're the guy just writing these people and saying, oh, man, I love you guys. I just, I'm excited for what God's doing in you, and I'm rejoicing in what God's doing, and, and my joy's overflowing. How do you have that kind of a joy when life is going the way it's going for you, and I should have more joy, and I'm not? And that's one of the ways that as Christians, we should be evangelizing people is that they can just see the unshakable joy that we have, which is harder to identify when everything is going well. When everything is going great, everything seems to be lining up, most people will say, of course you're happy. Look at you. I mean, life seems to be working out for you. It's when things are difficult. It's when diagnoses are hard. When pain is real, and yet there's an unshakable joy that that makes people ask the question, how can you possibly have joy in these circumstances. But for Paul, it is unshakable. And because he knew Jesus, and he believed that Jesus had risen again, never to die again, now his joy was in someone that would never die and that would never end. See, we find all kinds of things to place our joy in, but if we place our joy in something that will end or someone that will die then when that thing ends or that person dies, so does our joy. And then the phrase becomes true, right? Hey, all good things must come to an end. So enjoy your vacation while you have it, but the moment that's done, just figure out a way to grunt through it and get back to work. But if we place our joy in something that never ends, in someone that never dies, then neither does our joy. Neither does the peace that it brings us. Neither does the security that it provides for us. If it's rooted in someone or something that never dies, then it's sure. If it's rooted in my job status, the moment I'm fired, I don't know who I am anymore. If it's rooted in my relationship, the moment that relationship falls apart, I don't know who I am anymore. If it's rooted in the congratulations I get from other people or or how much I'm trying to give to raise some child and then that child looks at me and says, I'd rather you not be my dad. Boom, there goes my joy because it's in something that we can't guarantee in something that actually we know will not last forever. Paul has his joy rooted and grounded in Christ, and so it's unshakable even in the midst of prison, even in the loss of personal privacy. And so then we can get to this climactic verse in 21 where he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, how, 
How did you get here? How did you get to this place where you can have this kind of unshakable joy? And it's because in Christ, he has been offered something that no one else can offer, that no one else even claims to offer. Christ has given him and offered to him unending life. Christ has offered to him unending life. So that for Paul, death is not the end. When death will come for Paul, he knows and he believes that's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of eternal life. It's what he believes. And so he can say, otherwise there's, there's no way to make sense of the second half of that verse, that to die is gain. What are you gaining, Paul? I'm gaining unending life. If, if this is the only life there is, then the only way to understand life is just this, however long it is, it's this experience of trying to get the most out of you can, but isn't it weird that the longer you live, the less you're able to do and the more things hurt and you're not quite able to enjoy the things you used to have been able to enjoy just 10 years ago. And you're just stuck in this reality that I, this is just getting worse as it goes. This is getting more difficult as it goes. Man, I never hope I get to the point where I can't do this or do that. Well, that's the perspective you have if you think that that's all there is. But if you believe that death can be the beginning of eternal life, where you and I are in no way diminished in our capacities, where we can experience it fully, then we can say death is gain. And then it changes how we live in the present. For me to live is Christ. And Paul has already demonstrated that. He's demonstrated that by the unshakable joy that he has in the midst of all of his circumstances. But this is the unique offer of the gospel to you and to me. And whether you are willing to believe it or not, this is the choice that you and I have to make. And, and Paul goes on to describe, not everyone believes this, not everyone accepts this. Some people are just content to kind of live in their reality and be as distracted as possible so that they don't really have to think about this. But he's inviting them to say, no, just stop and think about it for a moment because even if you're not a Christian, it is usually when you're really willing to think about the reality of death that your priorities become so much sharper and you desire better things for yourself and the people that you love, right? So that even if you, whether you believe in Jesus or not, when someone close to you dies, it just has this way of bringing into your life what I like to describe as temporary sanity, so I think most of us are just living in insanity. That if we can just be as busy as possible and as distracted as possible and not have to think about these things, we're happy. But there's something about significant loss that has a way of focusing us to say, you know, I think when that moment comes, I'm not going to wish, oh, I just wish in my life I would have played a lot more video games. Man, that would have made life so much more meaningful. Oh, I'm, I just wish I could have been bitter to more people. I wish I would have had more conflict in my relationships. No, there's something about it that just says, wow, I wish I would have forgiven more. I wish I would have loved better. I wish I would have cared about people in a real way. And here Paul is saying, you don't have to wait till you're old to think that way. You don't have to wait till someone you love passes away to think about that. You just have to think about life and think about Christ. 
and be open to the fact that this Christ who died and rose again offers to you and me eternal life. So that you, could, you and I can say just like Paul, just like Sam was testifying, for me to live as Christ, I want to know more and more. That's not just great news we celebrate now, but that's news that never ends. That's a reality and experience that never dies, that nothing in this life can thwart, which is why we're so excited about it, so thankful for it, and why we can celebrate it in the moment, because that's what it offers to you and me. And in verse 27, it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This now he is saying to those who've accepted this message, who believe in Jesus, saying, let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel. In other words, if you've accepted this message and if you've encountered Christ, then live in such a way as someone who it's clearly evident to people that you're a recipient of undeserved favor and you know it. You're happy to say that. I've I've received grace. (laughs) I've not earned anything. I've not impressed anyone. Uh, I am a recipient of undeserved favor. And in that way, you can have compassion towards people who disagree with you. You can love those who oppose you. You can be patient towards... I mean, Paul, Paul went from having zero patience for sincere believers to having patience for insincere believers, right? Almost none of us have patience for that. <laughs> if there's anybody that frustrates you, it's a religious hypocrite, right? And Paul would have said the same thing, but he's looking at people and he's saying, I, I know that... Their motives are mixed in what they're doing, but goodness gracious, who am I to who am I to not be patient with them if God was patient with me? So when it says let your life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, it's not inviting us to do things in order to earn the gospel. It's saying because you could never earn it, now live in such a way that the gospel is clearly evident in your life and mine. And so Live as someone who's been a recipient of undeserved favor. Have an unshakable joy. And let even the most mundane of things that you wrestle with on a regular basis be influenced and impacted by the fact that you really believe that all good things won't come to an end. If you're a Christian, you don't believe that. If you're a Christian, you believe that all that is genuinely good and of God will never end. And so live your life in that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're just challenged by the example of Paul in a prison cell 2,000 years ago and the joy that he could have in the midst of his circumstances. And we're sitting here in the wealthiest nation in the world with more toys and trinkets available to our fingertips than we can even fathom or possibly use. But we confess that our joy is often shaken. Our confidence and our security is often undermined. And so, Father, I just pray that through your Spirit, you would help all of us to explore our own hearts and to see if we can repeat in truthfulness Paul's statement that we live for you and so death is gain. Give us in a moment of temporary sanity the conviction of your spirit to choose to follow you 
and to care most about the things that matter most. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.